Hey, good morning. My name is Luke. If I've not met you yet, I'm one of the pastors here at Legacy Church. I'm very excited to teach today. A little bit of a different day today. Um, if you brought your Bible with you or use an app, turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We are departing for a week. We're going to depart from our work in the book of Acts and change up the playlist a little bit because we have something real special we're going to do in about 30 minutes. We are going to set in two new pastors here, um, which is a pretty big thing today because today is our birthday, our four-year birthday. Not exactly our birthday. I need to qualify. Our birthday was sometime in the end of September, right? So we're kind of celebrating it today because it was the easiest date we could get for our birthday party. But approximately four years ago, um, we publicly launched Legacy Church. And even maybe the year to 18 months before that public launch, we're meeting in a living room, we're praying, we're preparing, we're trudging, digging, doing whatever it takes to build and, and nurture a church that will love Legacy or love Knoxville well. I have to say, the last four years, five years, I guess plus, have been the most painful and hard years that, that I've ever lived. I never thought it was going to be this hard, never. But I never thought I'd have this much fun either. I never thought I would grow to love this city as much as I do. I never thought I'd grow to love you as much as I do. And I know I speak for my family when I say how excited we are to be here after four years and that we plan on living and dying here, spending the rest of our breath here. We look forward to continually building more disciples, starting new works, starting new communities that are on mission for God. We look forward to doing all of this until the day that Jesus comes back on a really cool white horse and tells us to just stop. It's okay to stop. So one of the goals that we have had as a church and we've stated and restated in many different ways, is that we desire to be a church that will lead Knoxville to love and enjoy Jesus. And we know the only way to do this is through building disciples. Building disciples who love and enjoy Jesus, and building disciples who um, enjoy his people and love his people, enjoy his mission and love his mission. So for us, building disciples is a primary metric it's a primary mark and a goal we look to hit. And we're still trying to grow in this as a church. I think it's one of the things that I always find us looking at as elders and as staff. How do we do this better? How do we grow disciples better, build leadership better? What, what does a healthy leader look like? How do you know? Right? How do we build venues that encourage this? What kind of environment really makes this kind of a thing happen? Where have we done it poorly in the past? Where are we doing it poorly now? What can we do now to change this? It's important for us because the church isn't healthy if it's not building disciples that are building disciples. It's just not. You know, another way of saying it is that a, a church is only as healthy as it sticks to the Great Commission, right? And some of you who might be a little bit new to Christianity, I know there are some people that haven't been around for very long. The Great Commission, those words are not actually in the Bible, but it is a title given to describe one of the last instructions Jesus had in the book of Matthew. So you don't have to turn in First Corinthians, but up on the screen you'll see Matthew 28. This is where the Great Commission can be found. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says to his disciples. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And one of the things that he has commanded them is to do what? 
Go out and make disciples. So you see a little bit of a replication model built into the Great Commission. Not only leaders and disciples, but leaders and disciples that are making what? More leaders and disciples. You will know when you have seen a good biblical leader whenever you see them replicating leadership around them. There is no such thing, no such thing as an effective disciple who is not discipling others. You might be a disciple, it's not an effective one. There's no such thing as an effective disciple who is not discipling others. We see this in the Great Commission. We see it even in Genesis. If you look back, you see that God did not just make fruit. He made fruit with seed in it. God is always thinking about the next level, the next generation, what is coming after. We even see in 2 Timothy 2, it's a really cool passage where the Apostle Paul is speaking to one of his disciples, another leader speaking to another leader, and Timothy. And he says, And these things that you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses, trust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. So you see four generations of leadership that is building into new leadership, like a baton being passed. You see Paul speaking to one of his chief disciples, who he's encouraging to teach more disciples who will do what? Teach more disciples. This is, this is important for us to know as a church. You know, there's this phrase that's been popping up more and more in football, because it is Sunday, we're going to talk about that, right? And it's, it started off, I think, in college football, but you're seeing it more and more in the NFL, and the phrase is this, next man up. Next man up, right? I'm starting to hear it, so I went on Bleacher Report, and they have a really good definition of what next man up means. It means no excuses, they say. No matter what the position is or how far down the depth chart a player is, everyone prepares like they expect to play. When a player's number is called, he is not overwhelmed by being thrust into this situation. Next man up. Someone's injured, next man up. Someone moves on, next man up. Someone graduates, next man up. Someone retires, next man up. Acting like you're ready for it, not being overwhelmed, but being ready In a church that is built like ours, and we've endeavored deeply to build a church that is always sending, scattering. This is what we would call a gathering. We're gathering here. But what we're truly focused on is scattering, going to the city, uh, starting new communities that are on mission in different parts of the city, different campuses, different church plants, different campus ministries. We want to scatter everything to the wind and permeate all of culture. And whenever you have a church that has a model like that, you have to always be thinking next man up. It's got to be your anthem because you've got your best leaders going out all over the place. You have to keep building disciples who will build disciples who will build disciples. So part of building leadership, and that is what we're talking about today. Not in a, I'm not going to talk about leadership in a in a way that is very total. So you might hear me reference something that you think there's a lot more to, and there really is. These are just some thoughts that I have on it, and I'm building a context for what we're going to do here in a moment. But this will be important for you because we are all called to lead, all of us, everyone in this room. And that might be new to some of you, that you are called to lead. Part of building leadership in people is redefining what leadership is. See, our culture is where we glean most of that. And it doesn't do a great job of teaching us what biblical leadership is. So we start looking awkward after a while. We start gleaning some real weird leadership concepts. One chunk of culture, they believe that leadership is born. It can't really be made. 
So it's all nature, not very much nurture. So I remember years and years and years and years ago watching the very first season of The Apprentice. Don't judge me because it was cool back then, okay? But I remember one of the first episodes, Donald Trump come rolling off a private plane, and it was part of the narration, I guess, before the episode started, saying how he didn't believe that leaders could be made. He felt like they needed to be born, and he felt like it was his job and his talent to dig through all of the coal until he found the diamond in the rough. I just disagreed with him in the moment. I don't really think that's true. But then you have another chunk of culture that believes that there is no nature to leadership, but it is all nurture, right? Very other end of the spectrum. This position might say you could fill a room with a thousand people, and if you give all thousand people the same books, you give them all the same mentoring, the same coaching, the same challenge, that they should all be able to lead Fortune 500 companies. And I just don't believe that that's true either. I don't think it's a very biblical model. Another chunk says, and it's a cultural myth, I think, is that if you're leading, it means that you're better than the people that you lead. How do you know who's best in the room? The highest quality person in the room? Well, it's the leader. And if they were better than you, then they would be leading you. But the very fact that they're following you means that they're lesser than you in quality. Therefore, you're the leader. You win. I think my favorite misconception out of all of them, though, is that you can do a miserable job leading your private sphere, your personal life, and still do a really good job leading in the public sphere. I also believe that that, you guessed it, is not very true. There's this controversial idea that came up regarding this way back when former President Bill Clinton was caught in a marital indiscretion, right? Some of you are old enough to know what I'm talking about. Some of you aren't. Go to Wikipedia, whatever. But he was caught, and this was, this was the controversial argument. I don't care what he did. That's his private world. Whatever he does in his own time, that's his thing, but it has nothing to do with how he leads a country. Biblically, I would disagree with that statement. So what I'd like to do today is just briefly look at how you lead. You all lead. How do you do it? Many of you have overassessed how good of a leader you are. Many of you have underassessed how good of a leader you are. But I think most of us don't even see ourselves as a leader, nor do we think of ourselves as a leader in any kind of leadership capacity. We have no awareness of how we lead. There is a leadership consultant, a business consultant as well. Her name is Erica Anderson, and I was reading on some of her writings not too long ago, and she says this, of, of the executives I've coached over the past two decades... I'd say that only about 25% of them are genuinely self-aware. <laughs> the rest do not see themselves accurately, sometimes to an astonishing degree. I think that number is probably low. Biblically, we are all called to lead to some level. Now, some of you are called to lead just your personal sphere, the small circle around you. That's where God has you. That's your arena. He's looking to get you to grow and how you lead yourself. Maybe it's just your family. Maybe it scales all the way up to a large corporation or a chunk of the city or a chunk of the church. And so what has helped me in the past when it comes to looking at leadership and effective leadership is looking through the lens of four dimensions, right? So this is a little bit of a different sermon. Not only are we not in Acts, I'm flipping it upside down and the application is up front, but you'll see where I'm going here in a minute. What comprises a good biblical leader? So I want you to follow along these four measurements and see if you struggle in any of them or if you struggle in all of them. Because make no mistake, you are called to lead, and this will be important to you. 
right? This would be a good diagnostic. One of them is competency. Competency is what it sounds like. It's the ability to lead yourself. It's your ability to lead others. It's know-how, and not just know-how, but the ability to execute upon that know-how. So can you create an environment where you're facilitating the growth of you and those around you? Can you create an environment where change is effective? Or, and I think this is probably the most pure and distilled definition of what good leadership is, can you take the disorder and disarray around you and order it? Can you take the chaos and the entropy and put it in rows and put it where it belongs and bring order to it? This is competency. For some of you, it's just balancing your checkbook. That's hard for you. I remember a stage in my life where I was bouncing checks just as fast as I was riding them, you know? I had my pager turned off once because I bounced the check. They shut my service down. And, and what was cool to me back then was seeing how many bags of Funyuns I could eat in a week, you know? I mean, that was cool to me. That was about as far as my leadership got. So whenever I became a Christian, God was calling me to lead myself better, lead my personal sphere better. Some of you, that's where God has you. That is your competencies, looking to see nurtured. Some of you, it might be a little different. You're leading a neighborhood, leading a community group, leading your kiddos' softball team, leading something like that. For some of you, it might be a business, a chunk of the city, as I said, or a chunk of the church. You need knowledge to pull this off, competent knowledge. How do I do this? How do I execute this? How do I balance a checkbook? How do I lead a living room? How do I lead a family? How do I lead a church? You need competency. Some of it comes easy for people. Sometimes it comes difficult for people. And we can all be groomed in this. This is the beauty thing about competency. God's wisdom comes to us in many different ways. I've grown a lot from books. I've grown mostly from other men speaking into my life. And I've grown just from God giving me competency to do something. Being put in an area where I just don't know what to do. God, no books written on this. All my, all my friends, they don't even know what to tell me. What do I do? And God tells me. There's an example of this in the Bible. It's a really cool prayer. 1 Kings 3, Solomon's Prayer. Without going deep into the story, this is what he says to the Lord. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I am but a little child. Now, he's not a little child. He's not like 10 when he wrote this, but he's young is what he means. I do not know how to go out or come in. I don't even know how to enter a room as a king. I don't even know the first thing. I can't king my way out of a paper bag right now. Verse 8, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind. He's praying for competency right here. An understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this? Your great people. God will place you in arenas where unless he moves and speaks to you kindly and gives you an understanding mind, you won't be able to lead. This is part of how he grooms competency in us. It's by building a dependency on him. It's important for us to know that as Christians. See, this, po this point on competency is important because many of us in here aren't developing our competency at all. We're not. We're, we're possibly over-assessing ourselves, and we think we're better leaders, so we don't need really much help. That's usually the typical person I run into. I got this kind of a person. 
when they really don't got this. We have some that underassess and they, th- they don't build any competency to lead at all because they don't believe that they're called to lead. I'm, I'm just a follower kind of a guy or a, a follower kind of a, of a wife. I don't, I don't lead anything, which is totally untrue, especially if you're a wife, right? We have some people that don't utilize the resources around you. And then we have many that don't pray and ask God to help them build their competency. So what are you doing currently? Quick question before we move on to the next point. What are you doing to develop your personal competency wherever you are leading? Whether you're just trying to lead your own life or whether you're leading something quite a bit bigger. What are you doing? The next thing that's been helpful to me is capacity. Yes, these all start with C. Don't hold that against me either, right? It's helpful for me to remember. (laughs) Capacity. Think size of the gas tank or bandwidth. It's really the size of your shoulders and your ability to hold a load. That's what capacity is. And sometimes some things can happen to you to reduce your capacity, right? So I've known great, great, great pastors who have had to come out because their wife got cancer or something happened to one of their kids. And even though they had great competency, they didn't have the capacity anymore. So they've had to kind of step back in how they have led. Most of the time, that's not the case, though, when it comes to capacity. Most of the time, people are so clogged and cluttered and waterlogged that they don't lead, even though they have a a competency to do it. They have reduced their own capacity. I am so busy, I don't have time to talk to my kids about puberty or school. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. Or I'm so busy at work that I don't even know my neighbor's names. I've got so much going on right now, I can't even, whatever it is, fill in the blank. You're so cluttered. You're so clogged. You have forgotten why you were here. Because Jesus will not be impressed with how cluttered we are. He's not going to be impressed with how waterlogged. Oh, Jesus, I was so busy. I had, I had the best of intentions, but I was so busy. I'm called to make disciples, friends. Some of the most brilliant leaders that I know, they have a desire even to lead, but they've allowed the speed of life to remove them from the field and put them squarely on the bench because they are so cluttered. What do you have right now that is reducing your capacity to lead? Not your competency, but your capacity. Maybe something was done to you and you just happen to find yourself in a weird, awkward season and it's not permanent. But maybe some of you, you have accumulated enough clutter and lint in your life to where you couldn't lead even if you wanted to. Another one real quickly is calling. Calling is, uh, it's a different sermon series all in of itself, but it's basically the direction, the level, the degree, the arena that God has marked you to lead within. Again, God has marked some people with different kinds of leadership than others. Notice I didn't say better leadership. Different. I've seen some homeschooling moms have a definite calling, firm and valuable calling that's just as firm and valuable as the president of the United States. One's not better than the other. It's just different than the other. It's a different calling. And I guess as a side point, leaders, just to crush this myth, are not better than those that they lead. They're just different than those that they lead. They're not better. I'm married to my wife. I lead my marriage. Again, another sermon series. Don't freak out on that statement. But I lead my marriage, okay? But that doesn't mean I'm better than my wife, does it? 
I lead among a group of pastors. I have a significant leadership role here at this church. But my leadership doesn't make me better than the pastors that I'm leading with. It doesn't make me better than you. This makes me different. I have a different calling. We've actually seen this so far in the book of Acts, haven't we? We've seen Peter and we've seen Paul marked and called to lead in a big sphere. They're planting churches. They're doing some nutso things. It's been a, a crazy ride just following along with them. But then we also see Stephen and Philip, which were called and marked differently, more as an evangelist or a deacon. And they interlock and they overlap. One is not better than the other. It's not like Paul is at the top of this pyramid and everyone else's calling is, I guess, less than Paul's. They're all valuable. They're all hand-delivered by God. Some of you, you don't know what your calling is, don't know where you're called to lead, and that's because you don't even broach the subject. You just assume that you're not. Another one is character. Our last one is character. I think one of the more important ones. This is simply the heart and the private world of the leader. What are the ethical bones that constitute the leader? It's the best way I've, I've found to think about that. And I'm a very firm believer that you cannot lead beyond who you are. You could fake it for a while, but it'll catch up to you. It'll implode, and it will be found out. You can only lead people from who you are, not what you know. You can only lead others from who you are, not what you know. And if you try to raise your kids to be alcohol, not to be alcoholics when you yourself are an addict and an alcoholic, good luck. That's not going to work. It's going to blow up in your face. You, you just can't lead people out into waters that you've not been able to swim in. That's how leadership works. Have we not seen this with CEOs and pastors and politicians everywhere trying to lead people beyond who they are, just firmly doing it on what they can put out there, on what they know? And it never works, does it? None of us are shocked and amazed whenever we see that implode. It's important. This is a primary target for God as he speaks to his leaders. If you pick up Timothy and Titus, you'll see in the third chapter of 1 Timothy and in the first chapter of Titus, as you look at those, God is very prescriptive over how this person ought to look. Pastors, deacons, they must look a certain way. Most all of those labels are according to character. We don't see Paul saying they need to be brilliant. They need to be like leadership assassins that can lead through any storm just brilliantly in their sleep. We don't see that. We see things like, can they be honest? Can they be not addicted to things? Can they be a person that owns responsibility, doesn't shirk off duties? Not my bad, you're bad. That's what we see. I don't see, when I see bad leadership, I don't see it because it's a lack of brilliance and competence. Most of the time I see bad leadership, it's because of a lack of character. I think you've seen that too. I think it's kind of obvious, right? Genesis 3 gives us a beautiful passage on this, and this is really what I've been racing to get to. This is where it becomes very close and personal to all of us. Genesis 3, in the garden, but the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said to the woman whom, or the, the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me. 
and I ate. Here is a great picture of Adam, who has all the capacity in the world, all of the competency in the world, all of the calling in the world, but he leaks and lacks character. And he turns into this blame shifter, this, uh, this one who abandons ownership, abandons leadership, and shoves it off and says, not my deal. First of all, God, it's your problem. And then secondarily, it's her problem. But it's not my problem. It's not my fault. You know, this is the bad news for all of us in this room. This is the bad news. Is that was firmly installed and in all of our genetic codes. It is in mankind to shirk duty, to push off leadership, and to say, not me. Not my problem. Not my responsibility. We don't own it. We don't lead it. We just simply abandon it. This is why people in their 20s are acting like adolescents. I heard not too long ago that the average age, I couldn't believe this, the average age of the gaming addict, not the gamer, the gaming addict, is 35 years old. 35. Grown adults unable to lead themselves at the most basic levels. This isn't a sign of the times. This is a sign of the fall. It's a sign of the fall. It's in our blood. Yet, as failed as we are, God is still calling us as failed people to equip and disciple other failed people. You see, here's the good news. If that's the bad news, the good news for us is that we have a perfect leader. We have a perfect pastor. We have a perfect shepherd in Jesus Christ. And his leadership is flawless because he waltzes behind us and picks up the messes we created. That's what a good leader does, by the way. They own the mess around them even if they didn't create it. They order the disarray around them even if it wasn't their fault. And this is what Jesus does for us. In fact, it is our imperfections and our scar tissue and our weirdness that builds the stage for him to show what? The greatest form of leadership ever exhibited for mankind. Our imperfections and sin built the stage for that. You have a bloody cross and you have a very empty tomb punctuating a perfect life lived. And what this does is it shows us that he began once and for all the process of taking all disorder and all chaos and entropy and reversing it, bringing order as an ultimate leader, as an ultimate hero to us. All of creation groaning and grinding under the weight of man's sin, under the weight of our disorder. And he comes and he begins to redeem it and reverse it. He's a great leader. We run from our mess and he owns it. So because of this work of Jesus, this beautiful, grace-drenched work of Jesus in our life, we're given a new genetic code. One that starts to reverse the old one, restructures us more to look more like our king from day to day. I mean, as the Bible says, our, our outward pieces, they all start to kind of fall apart and decay. But, but day after day, I'm renewed. Day after day, we look more and more and more like our first primary leader in Jesus Christ. I think we see this. Paul does a real brilliant job of putting a contrast together for us in 1 Corinthians, which is where I hope you're still at. If you look in the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the 15th chapter, we see something where Paul kind of unites the first and the second Adam in a way that we see the trading of, I guess, the way we were put together. 
Verse 21 of chapter 15. For as by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, that's Jesus. Verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. And then if you drop down to the 45th verse, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And here it is right here. We see the trading of our genetic code. It's changed from the first Adam to the second Adam. Right there. Right What does that mean for our leadership? Whether you're leading your own personal realm or you're leading something much bigger, what does that mean? It means that you abandon the way your first father used to lead. The one who shirked duties and said, not my deal, that's your bad. God, that's your bad, that's her bad, that's his bad, that's the culture's bad, that's the president's bad, it's my stupid boss's bad, it's my dumb neighbor's bad, it's everyone's bad but my bad. It's not my responsibility, I won't lead a thing, I'll follow when I feel like it. It's abandoning that and starting to aspire to the way that Jesus led, which says, I will take responsibility. I will own this, I will lead it, and I will order it. I will bring it into order. It means we become less of one and more of the other. That's what the gospel does to us when it pertains to our leadership. And as we lead, we do it with great competency that grows as God enables us. It comes with great character as God knits us from the inside. And it comes with great calling as he points us in the right direction. You see, we're essentially called to nurture this organism called a church, and it is an organism. It's not an institution. It flexes, it stretches, it grows in different dimensions, has a heartbeat. It's an organism. We're called to nurture this thing. And next man up is our anthem. Next man up is reality for us. We're called to build disciples that will build disciples that will build disciples that will build more and more disciples. Flawed people teaching other flawed people how to look at a not flawed king. That's what we do in leadership. And when I say we are called to do this, I'm not saying the staff is called to do this or the pastors are called to do this. We are called to do this as a church. We are called to do this. You are called to do this. Who are you discipling right now? Who is discipling you right now? Who is equipping you to lead better? Who are you equipping to lead better? How are you fitting into this organism. Some of you really ought to be retooling the way you think instead of I'm not a leader or maybe I'm just a bad leader to how can I nurture my competency, enlarge my capacity? How can I refine my character and see God move in me to where I can be responsible for this sphere and a bigger sphere and a bigger sphere and maybe even hear God clearly as to what I'm called to lead in general? You've got to really change the way you think because that's what the gospel does for us. That's what the gospel does for us. I think the number one reason people don't grow as disciples and lead others, likewise, is because we treat our leadership too much like our first father did in Adam. We defer it. We shop it out to anyone else that's willing to take it. And we either do this because we're selfishly lazy or we're just self-fixated and fearful. We either don't want to put the work in because we're trying to secure our own comfort, we're trying to secure our own glory, our own security, or we don't put in the work to lead because we're just scared we're going to fail. And if that's the case, then you're just scared of how people see you. 
right? And I know what that's like. So where is your struggle when it comes to leadership? Which of those four C's, which again has been very easy for me over the years to remember, which of those four, or is it in all of them that you struggle? Because here's the thing, it's important for us, because you're going to leave here this morning, and you're going to walk out into a city, and it is strewn. It is cluttered with disorder and disarray. It's everywhere. There's people being trafficked. There's drugs, there's addiction, there's kids who are not wanted, there's racism, there's hatred, there's theft. There's all kinds of forms of depravity. It is the disorder. And creation is groaning and calling out for a leader. And the only leader that will work is Jesus. Jesus is the only leader that can really bring order to that disorder. But he has called his church to build disciples of all nations. Who will build disciples? Who will build disciples? And who will build more disciples? So we're about to stand up here in just a minute and worship God. But before we do, I wanted to build a little bit of a context because today we're going to set in some very imperfect men to lead beside some more imperfect men, to pastor a church of a lot of imperfect people, to go out and reach a city full of imperfect people, to see a very, very perfect Jesus. That's what we're about to do. And we've spent time looking at these elders, these pastors, verifying their character, looking at their calling looking at their competency, even looking at their capacity to lead. The Bible actually states the character qualifications for leadership in his church. That's a different series in and of itself, but we have written a position paper on it. It's on the weekly. You can click on it. It's called Who's at the Helm? And then also our bylaws are on there. You can look at our bylaws if you're interested in that as well when it comes to how we lead as a church. But those documents should help you. The Bible also says they're supposed to desire this. Because it's a noble task, and there's a lot on the line. We've evaluated that in these men. We've also had the opportunity to observe them in the past, looking at their capacity, looking at their competency, their character, and all of these things. I'm very, very honored and humbled to have these men added to our team. So if I could do this, if I could just ask them to come up. This is, <clears throat> the sermon was very short to build time in there for this. So this won't take a long time, but I think it's important that you see them and that you hear them. So if we can get Scott and Cindy Roberts to come up and David and Amy Holler to come up. And uh, Amy, you have to leave your baby. You can't bring your baby up here. I'm totally playing. <clears throat> That'd be uncomfortable, wouldn't it? Come on up. Kevin, you can come on up too. I'm sorry, buddy. We're going to be adding these folks to our eldership team. This is a big deal. I coach two or three other church planters, <clears throat> excuse me, that are in this same stage of planting. They've been around about three or four years. The number one most difficult thing to do for a young church plant is to find qualified, desirous people that have a skill set to lead a church. Some of them, they're not even close four or five years in. God has been very, very sweet to us very kind to us by stocking our cupboards and making it just easy for us to do this. So I'm very encouraged. Um, Let's use this mic right here. Scott, would you, we'll start with you, buddy. Will you talk to them a little bit, introduce yourself and your wife? Um, I'm Scott Roberts, and uh, this is my wife, Cindy. A little bit about our family. We have four kids, all of grown. We are now official empty nesters. And uh, although uh, our oldest child lives next 
Cindy is originally from Knoxville, has lived here all of her life, and I have uh, from, I'm primarily from the East Coast, but have lived here for a bunch of years. And, uh, it. Okay. All right. David, would you like to talk to him just for a minute? Yes. Yeah, buddy. Um, my name is uh, David Holler. This is my wife, Amy, um, Madeline, Gavin, Abby, Eileen, and Judson. And um, we're from Texas. Amy is from Brownfield, also known as Brown Dirt. <laughs> um, I'm from, uh, originally from Chicago, but for most of my life in Texas. And uh, God called us to help plant this church in Knoxville. Excuse me. So one thing that's important to say, mute Matt. One thing that's important to note is that can you already see that there is a variety and a mosaic pattern to how we've built our leadership team? His capacity is going to look different than his capacity. He has a small army of kids that all need to be clothed and fed and whooped and all right and all kinds of stuff needs to happen. So he might not be able to offer the same bandwidth as Scott would, but they have different competencies as well. Their character is, is above reproach, which is what it says in 1 Timothy 3. It says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. And then it goes on to list the things that would be included in being above reproach. These men are both above reproach. They are both desirous to do this. They are not just fans of Legacy Church. They, they own Legacy Church. They've loved this church. But their capacities might be a little different. It's just different than Kevin's, and it's different than mine. So our eldership team has a variety to it. Uh, we're, we're a symposium of leadership, but we're, we're different. We have different shades, which is healthy for you. It's very healthy for you. So what you need to know is we pray and set these folks in that this is not Luke and Kevin's church bringing people into our club like we're the Moose Lodge or the Cub Scouts or something like that, right? This is Jesus's church. He is the senior pastor. That's why you don't hear us using those words very often. I am a lead teaching pastor. This is Jesus's church. He is the senior pastor. I'm an under shepherd just like Kevin and we're setting in new under shepherds to lead you to the best of our abilities. I hope that makes sense. And so I'm just going to charge you. Go ahead and bring it in. I feel like you guys are aware. <clears throat> we're going to charge you guys with a couple vows, and then we're going to pray for you and set you in, and then we're going to move on with the service. But I'm going to ask you if you vow to do some things and let you respond afterward. But do you men vow to shepherd these people as Jesus shepherds his church and to aspire to do that? All right. Do you vow to lead our people right here in Legacy in unity and in harmony based around what the Bible teaches us? All right. Do you vow to lead this church to obey Jesus, not based on a fear of failure or a fear, or a fear of uh, a God punishing them, but just out of the joy of the gospel and the grace that comes? Right, good. Do you vow as men to be transparent and vulnerable between 
me and Kevin and, and other elders as time goes on, that we would know how you're doing and know how your families are doing at all times. Yes. Yeah, good. Do you vow to see God and beg God to nurture your character so that you become worthy and more worthy as time goes on of the office that you're being called to lead in right now? Yeah. And this prayer, Solomon's prayer, of saying, the people are important. I don't really know how to come in or go out. I, I need help with this. I need supernatural competency because I, I don't know. Do you vow to make that a prayer of your heart as time goes on? Yeah. Good. Well, then, Kevin, let's go ahead and come over and pray for them. And uh, those are some gifts. Go ahead, buddy. I'm sorry. I just want to want to pray um, for these guys, and then we're going to move on. Um, Father, we um, are are truly, in the most real way, humbled. Um, first, by your display of leadership that is evidenced and proven when we look at your Son Jesus Christ. <clears throat> that you looked at the brokenness and disarray of our lives and are making order of it, are making something good of it. You are, and, and we know that this is, this is your plan because you are the ultimate leader. And you're restoring those things to yourself, recreating us. And uh, we thank you. Thank you for your son. And we also know, Lord, that, um, that this church doesn't belong to us. That this is your church, Jesus. Um, you are the pastor of it. You are the chief shepherd. Uh, you are the ruler of your kingdom. And it doesn't belong but we also, Father, thank you for, and are humbled um, by the privilege and, and the calling to be under shepherds. Mm -hmm. And I thank you for these men and their families. I thank you for the unique role that you are calling them to as under shepherds. And Father, we do ask uh, for your grace uh, for Scott, David, their families, for Luke and me, and we ask also for your wisdom that we would lead faithfully, that by the power of your spirit, we would uh, lead where you're calling us to lead, and that we would uh, give credit you as, as the chief shepherd. Father, we're so mm -hmm. excited. You're, you're so good. We thank you and look forward to all that, that you're going to do 
uh, in your here in Knoxville, in this church that you're building, and also for everything that you have done. I pray that we don't miss it, that we don't take it for granted, that we remember the things you've done through your son and also just the little things you've done in this church have been so good. You're good to legacy and you're good to your people. And we know that you're going to continue to be good because you don't change. You are a good God. Mm-hmm. And we thank you in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Give him a hand as they get, get down the stairs. Love you guys. Did you cry? He cried all over his gift. He cried on his gift. Um, go ahead and stand with me. I'm going to grab the steering wheel and steer it back to my challenge for you is the musicians can go ahead and come up. Um, what you saw were men that they have a, a larger scope. Their calling and their sphere of influence has grown, but it was not always like that. God does change and that does fluctuate over time. So what I want you to do is the team comes up and they lead us in song. There are ways that we respond to what we just heard. So the word taught you. You saw in Genesis 3, you saw in 1 Corinthians 15, what, what Jesus has done to cancel out and to reverse the effects of what Adam has done and all of his people and how it looks in leadership. So you have an opportunity to respond. And we respond in a few different ways. We respond by singing. You'll have the words up there. You can focus on how God has changed your life. We have communion in the back, right? And we usually, that's what you'll do. You'll start to see people kind of snake their way back there in small little pockets. We, we do love the idea of taking our communion in, in plurality, taking it with someone, maybe your community group, your, your family, your roommates, something where you guys can pray together. That's another way that we respond to God because it's an image of a broken body and a spilt blood, right? So if you're not a Christian and this is all kind of foreign to you, we'd say don't worry about the communion. Don't focus on that. Focus on the king. Focus on Jesus and, and his body being broken and his blood being spilt for you. And then we also have giving. Um, giving is another way in which we respond to God. We respond to God with the thing that's very close to our heart, which is our treasure, right? Nothing gets much closer than our treasure. And so as we give faithfully, obediently, joyfully, consistently, and sacrificially, you have an opportunity to do that if you don't do it online. We have boxes on the table and we have a box nailed to that big door out front. Um, but I want to pray for you as they get started. So join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for being so good to us, God. Not just to tell us that we are supposed to be leaders, making new leaders and disciples, building new disciples, but you've shown us what that looks like. You've made it very easy. You've made it very easy because you've shown us the most beautiful leadership ever exhibited. And it is you on a cross cleaning up our mess. You owned the disorder by our hands. You are the greatest leader. You're not just a king. You're a perfect king. You're not just a ruler. You're a perfect ruler. You're very good to us. And so, Father, it's, it's not out of a sense of we have to lead in order to make God happy that we do this, but it's we get to lead because we've been well-led that we do this. Help us be a church and a people that see disciples created around us. Help us be a people to get to taste the fruit of that, to see leadership and discipleship flourish around us because we are investing our own life into it. And Father, I know there are people in this room who have never been discipled, never been led, never been taught, coached, mentored, counseled, 
Lord, that that would happen in their life, that they would find somebody, that they would find somebody and start to facilitate that. And Lord, there are even more people in this room, Father, that have never invested in anyone else. Lord, that that would begin to arise in our hearts, that we are to create disciples that would create disciples. But primarily, above all things, a heart of thanksgiving that you have led us well, that you have led us well, that you have come because we have created disarray, that we have created such a mess that creation itself groans in anticipation under the weight of the damage that we have done. That's what it says in Romans. And Lord, you yet loved us so much that you pursued us through all of that, picking up what we have shirked off, just like our father Adam saying, I don't want anything to do with that, not my problem. And you eagerly said, I will make it my problem. You are so good. So we love you, Father, and we thank you. It's in your name that we celebrate. Amen.